First Thessalonians. I have chosen as the title of this study, First Thessalonians, the church now and forever. And I've chosen that by, because I believe that in these two books, First and Second Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul treats those two things as his broad themes throughout both books. The Apostle Paul is going to spend a lot of time talking to this brand new and young church about what it means to live for Jesus Christ in a world that doesn't, how their lives are different, what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ here and now. And then if you haven't read through these books in a while, or maybe you've never seen them in your Bibles before, it might surprise you as you read through these two books how much ink Paul spends on the day of the Lord. What's going to happen in eternity? So he speaks to the church, to you and me today and now, and how we live as followers of Jesus Christ. And then it becomes important to him for several reasons to talk about how we view the coming of Jesus Christ and what it means to enter into eternity with him. So he talks about the church now. It's going to be, I think, wonderful to watch this book, how the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed the lives of these young believers in powerful ways, this powerful act of salvation inside of their lives, and then this transformation as they grow and mature in Jesus Christ. We're going to discover that this young church in Thessalonica was persecuted but thriving. I think that's going to be fascinating to watch throughout these two books. They're young in the faith and they're enthusiastic in the faith and Paul is grateful for everything that he sees in them, but they still have a lot to learn about what it means to grow in the maturity of Jesus Christ. And because Paul is so grateful for them, these two books actually become two of the more personal epistles of Paul. In a lot of his different books, we hear him talk about his thankfulness and his gratitude and he looks forward to seeing them again, but maybe more so in these books than we see in the others. We see the heart of the apostle poured out for this church. So the church now and what it means to be that, and then the church forever. Paul does spend a lot of time talking about the day of the Lord. It was a great concern of theirs for one or two very specific reasons, for good reason. Things were changing, and they didn't know what they were going to do with this doctrine of the return of Jesus Christ in eternity and how all of that worked. It was of great concern to them. So it was important to Paul that they understood exactly what it meant and to find not fear in that piece of doctrine, but to find faith and joy and hope. So Paul is going to teach us in these epistles that our hope in Jesus Christ places us in a certain kind of life here and now and carries us safely into eternity with Jesus Christ. That becomes an important way of understanding that doctrine throughout these two epistles, that our faith in Jesus Christ takes us safely into eternity with Him. I think that's critical. We're going to discover, as Paul's going to lead us through this, Our future hope motivates our faithful work now. What we hope for and look forward to and are secure in for the future motivates and changes our lives in the way that we live now. Before we start cracking open the book and reading what the Apostle Paul has to say, I want to take just a couple of minutes and sort of walk through the question, well, who were the Thessalonians? How did the church get started? What's Paul's relationship with the church and the others that he mentions inside of this epistle? 
Well, to begin with, at the time of the Apostle Paul, Thessalonica was actually a rather large and prosperous and sort of, for the time, a rather shockingly multicultural city. The city of Thessalonica had and still has a a natural port in the south coast of Macedonia. It's next to major trade rivers in the area. Thessalonica, along with several other large cities in the Roman Empire, had this special kind of political relationship with Rome that granted them certain kinds of favor and certain kinds of protection. So the city of Thessalonica, though large and multicultural, was also a very peaceful and prosperous place for its time. Some scholars put the city of Thessalonica during the time of the Apostle Paul between 75,000 and 100,000 people. Now, that doesn't sound a lot to you and me because we think of cities as 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 million people large. But being about 100,000 people large makes Thessalonica one of the 10 largest cities in the Roman Empire in the day. So this is a metropolis. This, this is a major seaport. This is a major city. Now, during Paul's second missionary journey is when he ends up in the city of Thessalonica. So I want to talk just a little bit about Paul's missionary journey, what brings him there, what sends him out of the city, because understanding how that trip works helps us understand what Paul has to say when he writes back to the church at Thessalonica. Paul goes on to the book of Acts, essentially three missionary journeys. And during the second journey, actually right at the very beginning of it, Paul's in what we would today call Turkey. Paul wants to turn right, the Holy Spirit speaks to him, and he turns left and makes his way into Macedonia. It becomes actually his European mission, the south end of the continent of Europe. And the first city that he goes to is the city of Philippi that hopefully you can read on the map behind me there. But at the very beginning of this journey, Paul takes with him a man by the name of Silas. As he's on his way to the city of Philippi, he meets up with and finds a young man by the name of Timothy. So the small missionary team includes Paul, Silas, and Timothy. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Silas's name is used, his Greek name is used, Silvanus. So it's going to sound different in our books, but it's the same guy, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. In Philippi, they establish a church in the house of Lydia, a businesswoman there in Philippi. Paul and Silas get thrown into jail. They get sprung from jail by the power of the Holy Spirit. All kinds of amazing things happen. The church gets started, and Paul and his missionary team move on to the next city, the city of Thessalonica. You can read the story of Thessalonica specifically in Acts chapter 17, the first nine verses is where that story is contained. But when Paul and his team get to Thessalonica, this is what they do. They begin in the Jewish synagogue. They go there, and Paul is a trained Pharisee, is a teacher of the law. He walks in, and he begins to talk about Jesus Christ. And he teaches there in Acts chapter 17 that Jesus Christ is the anticipated and longed-for Messiah, that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross, he was dead, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. And this is who we have been looking for. So as Paul does that for several weeks in a row, there are several of the Jews in the synagogue, and as the book of Acts puts it, there are several believing Greeks who get saved. They put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. So now part of what that means is that they leave the synagogue and they begin this brand new early church in the, life of a man, in, in the house of a man named Jason. 
who was probably a relatively wealthy and prominent member of society, someone who had a house large enough to sort of gather in this brand new young church. But when that starts to happen, these Jewish opponents and other opponents get angry at Paul and his missionary team in this young church, and what they do is they drag Jason in front of the city authorities, and they tell the city authorities, this is what's going on with these brand new Christians. They serve a different king than Caesar. Now, that's going to become really important. So, their complaint, their attempt to get Paul and his team and Jason and this brand new young church at this moment in Acts 17, weeks old, Their attempt to get them into trouble is to tell them that they're serving a different king than Caesar. And sure enough, persecution descends upon the church. Jason is thrown in jail. He's let out of bail. It is so intense that Paul and his entire missionary team are thrown out of the city of Thessalonica. So as they leave Thessalonica, the next city they go to is Berea, where they actually have this very positive response in Berea. But when the troublemakers in Thessalonica hear that Paul's doing really well in Berea, they move themselves to Berea, cause more trouble, and Paul has to escape Berea again. So as a result of those Thessalonican troublemakers, Paul then makes his way down the coast out of Berea to Athens, and Acts chapter 17 contains Paul's famous uh, sermon he's preaching in Athens. And then he goes from Athens to Corinth. Paul was able to leave Timothy and Silas in Berea. They stay in Berea for a little while. They go back to Thessalonica, and then they find their way finally back to the Corinth where they meet up with the apostle Paul, and they tell Paul how things are going in, in, in Thessalonica. So remember, when Paul leaves Thessalonica, It's under the weight of persecution. Christians are already being thrown in jail for following Jesus Christ. And he has leave, and he doesn't know what's happened. So Silas and Timothy meet up with Paul in Corinth. They tell him what's going on, and Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is one of the two earliest books written in the New Testament, Galatians and 1 Thessalonians. So when we read this, we are actually getting a glimpse into the very beginning stages of the church, the kinds of things that they dealt with, the kinds of things that they were confused about, the kinds of things that Paul was excited about that needed to be corrected in the church. We're getting a glimpse at the very hearts and the core of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us. So Paul receives word about how this church is doing And here's now what Paul has to say to them when he writes this letter. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, some of you are thinking, it's about time. 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction." You know what kind of men we proved to be among you 
for your sake. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. All three of these men are important to the beginning of this church. It's not just the Apostle Paul. It's this entire missionary team and and their back and forth and their relationship with this brand new church. All three of them are personally close to the people who are in this church, in Jason's house, in the city of Thessalonica, and all that they're going through. And as Paul opens this letter, if you have a study Bible, if you've stopped and read a little bit of commentary on a passage like this, one of the very first things they'll tell you is that Paul uses a a pretty standard greeting. This is the way in Paul's day and age someone would write a letter to someone else. This is who's writing this letter. This is who's with me writing this letter. I write this to you, grace and peace, and then on we go to the body of the letter. But when Paul writes this kind of thing, and you can read this at the beginning of the vast majority of Paul's epistles, it sounds a little bit like this. But it's not just some kind of throwaway standard greeting. It's the three of us who write back to you. I haven't seen you in a while. You saw Silas and and Timothy just not that long ago, and the things were difficult. And I want you to know that all three of us are writing this letter, and we're thinking of you, we're praying for you. You're on our hearts. These Christians, though, now they are separated by all of this geography and time and even difficulty. They're one in Jesus Christ. They're close. They share a common salvation. I greet you in the name of God our Father and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. They share a common salvation. They share their faith, their hope, and their love as followers of Jesus Christ. You see, their health and their maturity are dearly important to Paul and Silas and Timothy. So he's thankful for them, and he's committed to helping them grow in Jesus Christ. And then he wishes them grace and peace. Again, for the follower of Jesus Christ, these are not throwaway words. For young Christians in a young church walking through a crucible, some of them in and out of prison, maybe even within months' time, some of them even martyred for the faith, these aren't throwaway words. They've experienced the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ. And Paul wishes it upon them. He wants them to grow in it. He wants it to be deeper and more powerful for them. This is not just a simple greeting that Paul gives, but it's filled with meaning for the body of Christ. It's filled with meaning for the follower of Jesus Christ. Grace to you in peace, he says. And then in verse 2, he jumps right into this. And I've always loved this. Every time I come to this book, I've loved this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So much of this book reveals Paul's heart toward this congregation. He had gone there and things had gone well in Philippi and he shows up because the Holy Spirit had called him into Macedonia and when he comes, he begins begins to preach, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and they respond to the word and they're saved and they lay aside an old lifestyle and they're growing in Jesus Christ even in difficult times and he's thankful for them. When's the last time 
Someone just expressed their thanks for you personally and specifically, no strings attached. I'm thankful for you. And I want you to know that every time God brings you to mind, I pray for you. That's a powerful thing. Paul thanks God, he says, for them on a consistent basis. I will pray for you, and I will be thankful to God for you. This matter of thanksgiving, thanksgiving to God, gratitude to God for all that He has done, even in our brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a powerful discipline for the Christian. This is a powerful perspective for us. Now, look at it like this. We don't yet know, okay? We don't yet know because we're just beginning this book. We don't yet know what's wrong with the Thessalonians, the things that Paul has to correct. If he's heard anything that's gone wrong, they misunderstand or they're misbehaving or something's gone wrong. Well, it turns out that they are imperfect people, right? As thankful as he is for them, as all that they are going through, they are far from perfect. But notice this. Paul is thankful to overflowing for imperfect people because they've responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. He's thankful for imperfect people, which means I'm supposed to be thankful for you people, right? We're say, amen, see? We're supposed to be thankful for each other. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, in all of their profound and manifold imperfections, he begins with thanks. It's a powerful discipline. It is a formative discipline for the human heart to begin with gratitude, to begin with thanksgiving in the light of all that God has done, and to be able to express that first Paul's grateful to God for so much, their salvation, their endurance, and on the story goes. And and as we read Paul, we learn that this is actually a common practice for Paul. Most of his letters begin with something like this. Colossians chapter 1 verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. By the way, if you ever write a letter or a note or an email to a brother or sister in Christ, Why not include language like this? Why not include the kind of language that Paul writes to the Thessalonians? And you know what? You know what else? Every time I pray for you, I'm thankful for you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Thanksgiving as a discipline for the follower of Jesus Christ opens us up to the good power of God among broken and imperfect people in difficult situations. The discipline of thanksgiving actually opens us up to the good things that God has done and is doing and will do. And we need to begin there instead of beginning with the griping and the misery and the negativity because there's plenty of that to to go around, right? But when we begin with thanksgiving and gratitude, we actually open ourselves up to God. There's always plenty to gripe about, but we shouldn't start there. So this thanksgiving helps us see the goodness of God first and work with each other from there. And notice even how as we open this book, long before we know what needs to be corrected, we like the Thessalonians. 
We're excited about this. We're, we're, we're thrilled by Paul's relationship with them because it, this is how it opens. We want to get to know the Thessalonian church. There is one book in the Bible where Paul does not start this way, and it's Galatians. And the second you start the book of Galatians, you're thinking, I don't want to know these people. They're complicated. They're difficult. They've already walked away from the faith. But not so with these guys because we've opened with thanksgiving and gratitude for the work that God is doing. I love it. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and the labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, as he introduces us to this church, as he begins to talk to them about what he sees in their lives, he begins with this trifecta of faith, hope, and love. When we think of those three terms, if you've read a lot of the Pauline epistles, you often think of the end of 1 Corinthians 12 moving into 1 Corinthians 13. Now what remains for us is faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And then Paul conveniently writes a chapter that we can read at all of our wedding ceremonies, right? The love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. But it's not just there. If you're attentive to these things, A lot of the times when Paul mentions one of these three with the church, he'll mention two or he'll mention all three of these together. These become character traits for the church of Jesus Christ through the centuries. That somehow inside of us and inside of our lives, there is at work faith, hope, and love. And I like how he just very briefly describes these things that he's so thankful for. First of all, their work of faith. Notice that when Paul talks about their faith, he doesn't talk about it in terms of their feeling of faith, their emotion of faith. He doesn't talk about the blindness of faith. He doesn't talk about some form of mystical belief that we can't really explain, but somehow we feel like we ought to be faithful to it anyway kind of faith. He calls it a work. Our faith in Jesus Christ should be making its way out of our fingers It should be making its way out of our feet, out of our mouths, out of our checkbooks, out of our business, out of our education. He's actually able to see their faith as it works its way out of their lives. You see, the work of their faith means that their lives are filled with the activity of their trust in Jesus Christ. If I truly have found trust and confidence in Christ, it will change the way that I live. And it's not just here. He's going to tell them in a couple of verses later. He says, everywhere I go, I hear about you guys. I hear about your faith and your hope and your love. So it's worked, their, their, their faith has worked out of their lives so much that word has spread about the faithfulness of the Thessalonican church. Their work of faith. And then he uses this kind of language a second time, their labor of love. Again, it's not just a feeling of love, an expression of love, an emotion of love. It is the labor of love that they have with one another. You see, love is lived out amongst the people of faith. 
And this church has a growing reason every single day to learn how to love brothers and sisters in Christ with the love of Jesus Christ because they are no longer receiving any kind of comfort from the world. So when they gather together, what gets worked out between them is the love of Jesus Christ. And then as it turns out, those lives are so radically different that that love begins to pour out into the rest of the world and they begin to see the kind of difference that Christ has made in the life of the church. The culture gives them grief and they give love. This is such a powerful thing for the Christian to learn and to figure out how to do. The culture gives them grief and they return it with love. The work of their faith, the labor of their love, and then the steadfastness of their hope. I just gotten a kick out of how these three phrases are put together. That word steadfastness is this neat little word in the Greek, and what it means is active constancy. Active constancy. I'm so thankful every time I remember the active constancy of your hope. Through all that they're going through, they have not given up or let go of their sure and true hope in Jesus Christ. This is not for them some form of wait-and-see approach to their lives. Now, well, let's sort of hunker down and see what happens. Christ has actually motivated their lifestyles now, and again, their hope has become a part of what they do in the world around them, their steadfastness of hope. It's a beautiful thing to spend some time with. And then in verse 4, he continues on to say this kind of thing, for we know, brothers, Loved by God that he has chosen you. It's a great real, little, little phrase, and what Paul means by that is we, have, we know now that God has chosen you because of the effect the gospel has had among you. So he says in verse 5, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, showed up with power and complete confidence. These were people, as far as we know, as the story is told, who had never heard the story of Jesus Christ before. He walks into a synagogue where these people are anticipating and hoping for and looking for the Messiah, but they hadn't heard this story. So when, G when Paul begins to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not just Paul's eloquence or his ability to speak with these people. He says, we know it came to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. We spoke the word, but the Holy Spirit has changed your lives. Now, you've got to imagine again, Paul in Corinth, after all of these things have happened, as he's sort of made his way down the coast, Philippi went well. Thessalonica was a mixed bag and ended in persecution. Berea went well, but ended in persecution. He goes to Athens and he preaches this incredible sermon there to all of these Greek philosophers, and he has this really tiny little response to what he has said. So he goes to Corinth and he tells the Corinthians in that letter, when I showed up to you, I was frustrated. And so when he hears from Timothy and Silas that the Thessalonians have stuck to it, and that they're growing and increasing in their faith, even under persecution. Can you imagine what happens in this man's heart? I'm so thankful for what I have heard about Christ at work within you. So he says, so we know, we know that the Holy Spirit was at work in power among you.
Guys, the church of Jesus Christ is the family of God empowered by the Holy Spirit founded upon Jesus Christ. The church, what we are doing right now, what we do as followers of Jesus Christ every day of our lives, this is not just another community gathering. This is not just some form of another weekly duty that we engage in when we have time to do it. This is not a social club that every now and then does something nice for the community, so we're happy that the church exists. The church is a gathering of people who live in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God saved by Jesus Christ and on their way to God the Father. This is the church. It can never be reduced to anything else. It is humanity's utterly unique institution. There's nothing else like it on earth. It is the bearer of the power of the Holy Spirit and the representation of the kingdom of God here on earth. We are people who are changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and empowered by his Holy Spirit to live here now and to be with him forever. This is the church of Jesus Christ. So he's thrilled that the people have stuck with it and the power of the Holy Spirit is at work amongst them. Then he says, and you responded to, because we know that, the, that you responded to the speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which came to you not just in the words that we spoke, but in the power of the Holy Spirit as well. Friends, the preaching of the word of God is no simple speech. When the child of God speaks the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just from behind this pulpit, but anywhere and everywhere we are given opportunity to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, it can be done and it should be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is no ordinary message. These are no ordinary strings of words that we use. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Power to save, power to heal, power to transform. The preaching of the Word of God is no simple speech. This is not a political stump speech. This is not the beginning of a debate. This is not the um, result of my time in a forensics class. This is the Word of God. This is the power of God as it is spoken. It's not Phil. This is the power of God. So we learn, as Paul talks about the Thessalonians, and he's excited about them, that there is power, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the speaker, and there's the power of the Holy Spirit at work inside of the hearer as well. Ran across this wonderful passage from a book called Expository Exaltation by John Piper, and I've, I've given you the whole text there because I'm going to read the whole thing. I just want to make sure that you can kind of follow along and, and sort of absorb what bits and pieces of it make sense. But he says this about expository exaltation, the worship that is involved in the preaching of the Word of God. Authentic worship and the preaching, of God, and the preaching God uses to sustain it are supernatural experiences. Worship is seeing, savoring, and showing the supreme beauty and worth of the triune God. Preaching is one act of that worship. 
But human beings cannot see or savor or show this God as their supreme treasure apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who reveals his glory, enlightens the eyes of the heart, opens the darkened mind, and gives a glimpse of the glory of Christ that the natural person just cannot perceive. This is a supernatural work. The power of God at work within his words spoken and sung, the power of God at work inside of our lives as we receive and hear what God has to say. So the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, showed up when you first believed and got saved. You were transformed from darkness to light, from one way of life to another way of life, from, as a matter of fact, a life of ease and comfort in the world around you to a life of difficulty and persecution because now you bear the name of Jesus Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just that one moment when a life is moved from darkness to light and faith in Jesus Christ, but it's the rest of that life as well. You see, Paul writes back to this church because the power of the Holy Spirit is still at work transforming their lives. There are things that you don't yet quite understand. There are things in that old way of life that you're still living that you need to stop and change and do things differently. So the power of the Holy Spirit is still at work in discipleship and maturity and growth. What happens in the church And with the preaching and hearing of the word, friends, is a supernatural experience. He continues to say this at the end of verse 5. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In fact, this is a kind of theme that Paul is going to pick up a couple of times as the book moves on. And in verse 6, he says this. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know what kind of lives we led among you. And you, in fact, became imitators of our lives and imitators of the Lord himself. Paul and his missionary team lived lives to show Jesus. They lived the kinds of lives that taught Thessalonians how to live like Jesus. That's incredible. That's how they walk into this city. That's how they stick out. That's how they're different. That's part of how the Holy Spirit works in the conviction of the hearts and lives of other people is that these people are living different lives and they're speaking different things about the gospel, the good news of this Jesus Christ who is alive forevermore. Notice he mentions that again right at the very end of this introduction of chapter one. But we've lived these kinds of lives among you. Paul has actually said this kind of thing more than once in his epistles. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, 
Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. I had a, um, a religious studies professor um, in my undergrad work. He was a fascinating and interesting man. But he would stand down there at the lectern in front of this entire lecture hall, and he would just talk about Paul. He didn't like Paul at all. And he would bring up passages of Scripture like this and say, look at this. Paul is telling everybody all over the Mediterranean world to be like him. He, he would say, I find Paul to be one of the most arrogant men in all of history. It's not arrogance at all. It's not that at all. In fact, imitation <clears throat> is one of the central ways in which any human being learns anything. Is that we find people who are good at something that we want to do and we learn from them. We follow them. We actually imitate them. This is how children learn language, is imitating their parents. This is how kids learn how to live life often, is by imitating their parents and their peer groups. We're always imitating others that we want to live like. Our company really does become who we are. So it's critical that we find people like Paul who can say in all honesty, as long as I am following Jesus, imitate my life. If ever I don't imitate Christ, don't follow me at all. But you can't see Jesus, you can see me, so let's see if we can work this out. Let's see if we can actually live this out. But clearly, as Paul says these kinds of things, it's not about him or Silas or Timothy. It's ultimately about the Lord. He says here, you imitated me, and you've imitated the Lord as well. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Follow Jesus Christ and live like him. If there's no clear nutshell explanation of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I don't know what it is. But notice even as he's talking about this imitation of them and of the Lord, he says, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Their affliction, their persecution, their difficulties did not deter them. In fact, it became part of their growth in Jesus Christ, even their joy. This, again, is the kind of thing that outside of Jesus Christ makes no sense to human ears. If what I am receiving and experiencing is nothing but affliction in this world is all that there is, and my goodness, my flourishing is wrapped up in my happiness, then affliction is the opposite of joy. But it turns out that if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I have found certain truths in Him, even in affliction for carrying the name of Jesus Christ, I can find joy. Romans chapter 8, verse 21, Paul says this about himself as well. He says, look, there is nothing in this world, nothing in this world that I can compare to the glories that are to come in Jesus Christ. And this is a man who's seen a couple of things, who's been on the brink of death at least twice. There's nothing in this world that compares to the glories in Jesus Christ. Paul found it. The Thessalonians found it, and may we find it, this kind of thing in Jesus Christ that 
We don't always think about it, and quite honestly, friends, it's not always the easiest thing to find, but it is the truth of the revelation of God's word to us throughout Scripture. The Christian faith offers me so much more than this world could ever give. The Christian faith, following Jesus Christ in this world and in the next, offers me so much more than this world can give. And even more than that, Jesus Christ offers me more than this world can ever take away from me. Because there comes the rub. My faith, my hope, and my love, what's going to happen to that when this world starts taking things away from me? Everything is taken away from Paul, and he says, but you know what? There's nothing that happens in this world that can compare to the glories that we find in Jesus Christ. What we're watching unfold before us as Paul expresses his thanks, his remembrance for this church as he describes who they are, what he sees in them, and there are even things in this first chapter that act almost like a table of contents for a lot of what comes. This is how I want us to see it. As one pastor once said, as I begin to conclude. (laughs) What we have here is a brand new society being created in the church of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. A brand new society being created in the church of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Twice in these 10 verses, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is so powerfully at work among them that not only have they received salvation, but they experience joy in the midst of their affliction. This is the power of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. In the gospel, they have found something far more valuable than whatever set of comforts or lifestyle they had in Thessalonica before Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ showed up. They found more in Christ. And so Paul, not surprisingly at all, finds this reason to be thankful for them, for everything that he sees flowing out of their lives, even though they received it in affliction. So the power of the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work amongst the church. This new society, here's something else that he says about them. Their faithfulness encourages all the Christians who hear about them. Wouldn't that be awesome if that is the testimony of this church, if that's the testimony of this life, if that's the testimony of these families that when people hear about the work of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope, they're thrilled and they can't stop talking about what God has done among them. And I like the way Paul puts it. In this translation, you know, the sentence is a little bit backwards. It may be a little bit convoluted to what we're accustomed to reading and hearing. But Paul essentially tells them this. Everyone knows about who you are and your faith in Jesus Christ. I don't have to tell your story anymore. Everywhere I go, they tell me your story. Isn't that incredible? It is a deep and lingering pain when the failures and the faithlessness and the fecklessness of Christians becomes known. It is a deep and lasting pain. You really don't have to go far to watch that unfold before us today. 
On the flip side of that, though, it is a profound, almost inexpressible joy when the wise and steadfast faithfulness of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ is known. That even in the midst of that, they followed Jesus Christ. Who am I to let go of it? Who am I to let go of the church? Who am I to step back from the work of the Holy Spirit? Their lives encourage me. Friends, the enemies of the cross will always dismiss and slander the work of the church. But is our testimony one of faith and hope and love? Is our testimony one of which that the only explanation is God must be at work among them because I know them, and this is so much more than who they are. (laughs) Is this the testimony of our lives, of our church, of our homes? So their faithfulness encourages all the Christians who, who hear about them. And then Paul goes on to say this, and I'm so thankful because you have turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. Scholars tell us that Thessalonica in the day and age in which Paul was there was home to at least 25 different temples dedicated to uh, local deities, the Greco-Roman deities, the heroes of Greek and Roman mythology. Thessalonica is 50 miles away from Mount Olympus where it was alleged that all of the Greco-Roman gods actually lived. If, you're, if you were a convert and you were a Greek, that was the world that you have lived in. That's the world that your family has lived in for generations. If you're a Jew and a convert, this is the culture that you have been buried inside of all of your life up to this point. And he says, look, I am so excited to learn that you actually have gotten rid of all of those idols. You've stopped following idols and you've started following the living and true God. An idol is not just some piece of wood that sits on someone's mantelpiece 1,700 years ago, and they just throw it in a fire because they become a Christian. Friends, idols are not just different gods. They are different ways of life. Pay attention to that. Idols are not just different gods. They are different ways of doing life. So when Christians begin to follow Jesus Christ, when this group of people begin to follow Jesus Christ, and when I say everything for them is changing, I really don't think that's hyperbolic. When they start following Jesus Christ, this means their family structure is different. The relationship between husbands and wives is different. The relationship from parents to children is just completely different. Their relationship to their businesses and their finances, completely different. The way they structure their social systems is completely different. The way they view Roman citizens versus non-citizens versus slaves, now when you become a Christian, is completely different. They've quit living one way of life, and now they've started living another way of life. And idolatry is, again, not just something that happened to silly, simple, ancient folk. Idolatry sits in every human heart. The theologian John Calvin once said, the human heart is an idol factory. We create them over and over and over. So as we walk through this book, 
we're actually going to be teasing out some of the idols that are in our lives. We're going to be hopefully having our eyes opened to where these idols sit inside of our lives and our day-to-day behavior and our priorities and, and all of these kinds of things because God wants to get rid of all of these idols in our lives. An idol, friends, I'll leave you this thought on this one here because we're going to come back to it later on in this book. An idol is any kind of God substitute for us. Anything that substitutes for any role that God plays in my life is an idol. The pastor Tim Keller puts it like this in one of his books. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Every now and then I just like sticking a pebble in your shoe and letting you walk out the door. There it is. Anything in your life, should it be taken away, if you then decide, I don't even know if this life is worth living now, we've just found an idol. And it's time to replace that idol with God. So he's just so excited that their lives are changing and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And then this last thought actually leads us into one of the dominant themes of these two books. He wants to make sure that Christians understand how this works. He says in verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Thessalonians now, in all that they do, in all that happens to them, in all that they do as they develop as followers of Jesus Christ, He says, so now you wait. So now you and I continue in this. We wait for the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who suffered on the cross, died and was buried, who conquered death and rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and is our soon and coming King. So now we wait for Him. He is alive and He is coming. This Jesus who delivers His children from the wrath to come. You see, we sit safely in the hands of Jesus Christ in this world now, and we sit safely in His hands for all of eternity. And when we get a hold of those kinds of truths, then faith, hope, and love begin to make their way out of our lives in these brand new and powerful and transformative kinds of ways because we have found this Jesus Christ. Let's pray.